Call or text The Ron Show anytime at 404-919-2725. The Ron Show on America One Radio. All right, welcome back. We're on the back half of the Tuesday Ron Show, and I want to go back to Davos. You wouldn't want to go back to Davos, right? Uh, actually, I wouldn't mind going back to Vegas. There were some things I didn't get to do that I wanted to do. I told myself when I was going to go to Vegas, I was going to do uh, a Grand Canyon trip. It turned out it's like a three-hour drive. Eh, some other time. Uh, in fact, I need to make that the trip, the Grand Canyon, like camping in the Grand Canyon. Wouldn't that be cool? Like the Brady Bunch did. Remember that? Uh, anyway, I want to go back to Davos. And uh, actually, Brian Kemp didn't get a whole lot of uh, mic time. Uh, but Kirsten Cinema certainly did because I think the Europeans in particular are just fascinated by our level of partisanship and how ratcheted it up it has become in the last three to four decades. Listen to this from Kirsten Cinema. But I do think it's important to note that the that what you've heard about partisanship, I believe, is accurate. You know, in the in the last two years, if we if we think, you know. January 6th, which is a horrible day um, from two years ago, um, created, I, I think, concern and fear for every patriotic American across the country. But in the resulting two years, the Democratic Party um, shared a narrative that said we would not have any more free and fair elections in this country if the United States Congress didn't eliminate the filibuster and pass a massive um, voting rights package. As, you, as we all know, the filibuster was not eliminated. Joe and I were not interested in sacrificing that important guardrail for the institution. Um, that massive voting rights bill was not passed through Congress. And then we had a free and fair election all across the country. And as has been noted, the outcome of that election was different than many people expected. Most election deniers lost um, across the country, and individuals of both political parties, some extreme, some moderate, won. So we had a free and fair election. So one could posit that the push by one political party to eliminate an important guardrail in in an institution in our country may have been premature or overreaching in order to get the short-term victories they wanted. What Senator Sinema seems to be leaving out, however, is the vote suppression that actually did take place throughout these United States. Ron DeSantis literally arresting former convicted felons who thought that they had their rights re-enfranchised. And remember, that state's voters chose to re-enfranchise folks who had been former felons who had served their time and are reintegrating back into society. So that sort of suppression tactic was intimidation. You have this guy, Robert Spindell, a former Milwaukee election official. (laughs) He was also a fraudulent Trump elector in 2020. He puts out an email newsletter that Republicans can, quote, be especially proud of lower turnout in Milwaukee in November, quote, with major reduction happening in the overwhelming black and Hispanic areas. He was bragging about suppressed turnout in black and Hispanic areas of Milwaukee as aiding the GOP. And what Senator Sinema leaves out about the filibuster is that it wasn't used, it wasn't devised as a tactic to end legislation. It was created as a means for debating legislation. No one debates when they filibuster anymore. They just filibuster. They just say, no, not going to let this pass without a 60 vote threshold. There's no discussion beyond that. Used to be when you filibustered, you literally had to stand there and talk 
and debate until you were tired of talking and debating, and then you had to vote on it. The filibuster now is just lazy obstructionism. It's kind of pathetic, really. And the fact that it's set as high as it is, a 60-vote threshold in a population of more than 300 million people, where 100 people in that chamber of the legislature are representing that 300 million population in such wild governing and populated disparities by artificial lines and not in any way equal. You can't sit here and say Wyoming with its two senators and California with its two senators provide balance when California's population is 66 times that of Wyoming's. If Senator Sinema and Senator Joe Manchin want to be purist about the filibuster, then they need to go back and realize what the filibuster, when it began, was all about. I mean, if you want to be an originalist, go back to its original intent and its original purpose and how it was executed. She then pivots to Kevin McCarthy's saga in the House. We fast forward to where we are today, and we saw the House of Representatives struggle for multiple days in, the, in a row as Kevin McCarthy, dear friend of mine, had to, con- had to continue conceding point after point after point to the radical right of the GOP, to a point where he's now in an unenviable position that will make it very difficult for us to meet our obligation when the debt limit fight comes up later this year. Those are just two examples of the pull that you see political parties giving in order to get everything they want, rather than to recognize that the heart of a democracy is not just collaboration and working together, it is compromise. It is getting a lot done, but not everything you want done. And so I I think that there's actually a really big opportunity right now for our country to have a reckoning of sorts and to see that perhaps these polls that are happening in the parties, as Mikey mentioned, neither speaker has ever shown interest in recent years of collaborating with the moderates and other parties because they go on my way or the highway did. Pelosi did it. McCarthy's doing it. This is, this is not healthy for democracy. So I think that this is an opportunity for us as, as a country to look back and say, is this partisanship serving us? I would posit to you that it's not. And so Thank while you. some would say that there were reluctant folks working in Congress in the last two years, I would actually say that that was the basis for the productivity for some incredible achievements that made a difference for the American people in the last two years. A lot of that hyper-partisan pull to the extremes that she's complaining about could have been solved were it not for the filibuster. Speaking of the House, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who used to peddle 9-11 conspiracies, by the way, is now going to be seated on the Homeland Security Committee. Let that sink in. See, before she even ran for office, she she posted this video uh, referring to the, quote, so-called attack on the Pentagon, falsely claiming that, quote, there's never any evidence shown for a plane in the Pentagon. This is all true, she said, when someone commented on Facebook, arguing that 9-11 had been orchestrated by the government. She had to recant that publicly on the House floor when she said later, 9-11 absolutely happened. Marjorie Taylor Greene. 
now serving on the House Homeland Security Committee. Let's come back home and talk a little bit uh, state politics here. There was a uh, General Assembly Joint Committee gathering where Jeffrey Dorfman, who is, what is his actual title here? The state fiscal economist uh, was taking questions from uh, some of the legislators on various issues, speaking economically. I want you to listen to his answer to this query about the shrinking workforce. Chairman Hawkins. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. My understanding is that people that are not looking for work are not included in the unemployment numbers. Mm -hmm. Is that a significant number in the state of Georgia? And by the way, I'm going to skip Jeffrey Dorfman's long answer about the retirement age folks who just decided it wasn't worth the risk to work. Those who are working part-time, there's no differentiation when you're employed, whether it's part-time or full-time. He basically stated that if you were over 65 or 70 years old and you were working part-time, you probably just tapped out because it wasn't worth risking your health to COVID to work a part-time job. Whereas if you were full-time, you probably did. Anyway, that was the short summation of his answer. But I want you to hear what he says about working age men and (laughs) his rationale for why there's a dip in that number. So outdated, but take a listen. We also lost some more men of what we call prime working age, the sort of 25 to 55-year-olds during the pandemic um, that have not come back. Economists are working very hard to try and figure out what the problem is. Uh, I tend to be uh, somewhat in the camp of, I think, during the pandemic, when they were enjoying living on all the free federal money, they developed certain habits that may make them unemployable now, (laughs) meaning they maybe can't pass a drug test. Mm. Um, So making it of less consequence to use drugs that employers still uh, are not willing to tolerate makes more people be not in the labor force. Is that number significant? No. Or is the, the Again, younger it's people probably, who could work? Yeah. So it would be in the tens of thousands in Georgia, but it's not, it's not hundreds of thousands or millions. Thank you. Oh, my God. Welcome to Trope City Population One. Oh, my gosh. First, it was the free money, uh, then the doper. Yeah, it's sitting on your butt, enjoying the free money. And now because you do that and smoke weed, you don't want to go back to work. Uh, Seriously, dude. You know, I don't want to rail on a Georgia Bulldog UGA graduate, but come on, man. Also, Mr. Economy Walk, do you not want to talk about the gig economy? I mean, I have not officially technically been employed myself since the summer of 20. 19. But that's because I went to real estate school and I'm self-employed. I certainly didn't sit on my duff and I do not enjoy marijuana. I don't. I tried. Don't like it. Even the edibles. I just, I feel sleepy. I don't like feeling sleepy when I'm not tired. So why would I take something that makes me feel tired? I don't have to. Anyway, I just thought that was kind of a humorous exchange. Are we seriously still peddling the free money, smoking dope, don't want to work trope. Dude, it's 2022. It's time to retire that stuff. Okay, so you know real estate is my wheelhouse, right? There was this one question that came up that talked about institutional buyers, those corporate buyers of homes 
who were really inundating the market in 2020 and 2021 and into 2022, buying up uh, affordable homes, turning them into rental property and glutting the market then, of course, with rental homes and leaving those buyers who were ready to snap up the homes with those low interest rates themselves, leaving them out in the cold unless they had cash on hand to outbid. And of course, they didn't. I want you to listen to this exchange as well that uh, Jeffrey Dorfman had to answer this question. Mr. Chairman, uh, I'll be brief, but sort of a follow-up on the uh, workforce housing issue that we have and a follow-up to Representative uh, Oliver's uh, point about corporate ownership of homes. And Mm -hmm. speaking of that data, I know anecdotally from our community, we're seeing a lot of businesses, corporations, and not just local businesses, Mm -hmm. but national corporations they're buying up rental property. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition, I anecdotally uh, uh, have uh, even heard of in some very established, you know, upper middle class uh, neighborhoods that real estate invest REITs, real real estate investment trust, some of them foreign are buying houses. And mm-hmm. so, when we talk about this to sit here and fuel this corporate, you know, uh, need to continue to generate business in Georgia, it seems to me you've also got corporate America that's coming in here and and maybe if I, I can, investing in areas that historically they have not from a point of view of getting in the community and, and, and getting mm-hmm. our community out of balance with its housing issue. Because again, we want balance uh, in, in all of our communities. You know, we want homeowners, we want rental, we want affordable, but you got to have balance. So I guess my main question is, is what data do we have? And then how do we get more data so that we can make good decisions as we go forward uh, in addressing this issue? So it's unclear to me if there is any data. We know, I mean, right? Sometimes when you apply for mortgage, you do have to say, you know, I'm going to own or occupy or I'm going to rent. So technically, that data exists. I don't know how easy or hard it is to pull. But if a, if a New York City real estate corporation comes in and buys a house versus a mom-and-pop landlord buys a house to rent but does it through an LLC, they will both look like corporate owners. So we cannot easily distinguish between sort of distant corporate owners and local mom and pop corporate owners. Um, that's the hard thing. And, and there's a trend now in, in the neighborhood I live in. We've had several houses bought in the last couple of years in LLCs to hide who the owner of an ordinary house that's owner occupied is. And so I know for a fact that's not a rental house, but if you looked at the records and you see an LLC with an address in Nashville owning a house, you might easily think that's an absentee corporate landlord, but it's just a rich person hiding that they own. And I don't even know why they're hiding that they own a house Taxes. in my neighborhood, but they are. I, I don't have a good answer for you, unfortunately, on how we go about collecting better data. There is no doubt it's happening. We oh, know there's oh, more yeah. corporate ownership of houses. Oh yeah. We're just less sure yet 
whether this is good or bad and exactly how big a problem it is. There is data, and specifically in Atlanta, it was anywhere from 6 to 9% of homes purchased in 2021 and 2022 when interest rates were ridiculously low, meaning consumers lost out on 1 in 10 home purchases in that span. More Ron Show on America One Radio after this. 